If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. It looks like Burlington has quite the problem with wild coyotes. Time to call in the Roadrunner. Beep, beep. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, man. I think he's got a cold. Or maybe that's just the voice changing again. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, the whole gang is here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, some very historic footage uh, going on. Uh, images right now of the Queen arriving at uh, uh, Queen's Coffin, arriving at uh, Buckingham Palace uh, earlier today on the flight into London and such. And now uh, early evening there and uh, crowds and crowds and crowds of people. People uh, all around the area watching uh, the uh, the vehicle carrying the Queen's coffin uh, coming into Buckingham Palace, and then when it did, uh, massive and it was very bizarre because before the uh, before the uh, the parade of, of uh, vehicles and such arrived, dead quiet, dead silence, like you could hear a pin drop, and then uh, as soon as the motorcade came in, uh, the whole place just erupts in uh, a round of applause so quite an emotional uh, scene happening right now in london as the queen uh, arrives home uh, after uh, after uh, lying in state in Scotland. So we'll cover that coming up uh, a little later on. A lot going on both locally, uh, nationally, and internationally. Uh, locally, of course, we were talking yesterday about uh, the horrific shooting of a Toronto police officer in Mississauga. Still very little known, although we will talk to uh, one of our global reporters coming up uh, shortly to give us a bit more of a timeline and a bit more of an understanding of, of, of where we are and, and what happened uh, obviously, that uh, Toronto police officer fatally shot uh, in Mississauga. Then uh, another incident in Milton where uh, another person was killed. And then from there, it uh, moved into Hamilton and ended at the cemetery on York Boulevard uh, with a takedown there, which is now a third uh, crime scene. So uh, a bizarre scenario. We certainly don't know all the details yet, but we're trying to uh, find out as much as we can and pass that along to you. So uh, that's the local story. Nationally, uh, September 19th will be a national holiday. That is uh, Monday in honor of the Queen's funeral. So federal uh, banks, that sort of thing, it's a federal holiday. Uh, uh, to mourn, to uh, mark the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth and her funeral on uh, September 19th. The uh, Prime Minister has declared that. Also talking about uh, uh, affordability and uh, and issues in regard to uh, the GST and housing and dental and such. But uh, it was fascinating, uh, and, and as you may or may not know, the uh, there was a retreat in New Brunswick, and uh, the federal Liberal caucuses there uh, hammering out some sort of affordability plan which uh, caters to uh, those that are in, in need, and we'll play little bits of that uh, for you coming up a little later on. But it was fascinating when he was asked uh, about a reporter, or by a reporter, 
in regard to his comments on Pierre Polyevra, the newly elected leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, and it, boy, it's it started already, as I've said uh, yesterday, the divisive populist extremist leader on our left uh, meets the leader of the opposition who is divisive populist and extremist on the right. Uh, and a reporter asked him if he was being hypocritical. Listen to this. So how do you respond to critics saying that, you know, you're being hypocritical when you say don't pit Canadians one against the other? I think it's very clear that job one of any government is keeping Canadians safe. And those are the decisions we took during the pandemic to ensure that Canadians stayed safe. And, you know, no government is ever going to get unanimous consent on every important measure it puts forward. But we put the safety of Canadians and the economic recovery that we're experiencing right now at the center of every decision we took during the pandemic. And if it is divisive to point out that vaccines have saved millions, billions of lives, the vaccines are safe, and the best way through this pandemic, which we've perhaps ended the acute phase, but it will continue in various forms and we need to continue to stay vigilant. If people are calling a respect for science and an upholding and defense of facts divisive, but then perhaps people need to take a careful look at those who are saying that. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? But he's not divisive. He's not divisive. And just to uh, set the record straight, uh, no, it's not divisive to promote vaccines. No, it's not divisive to promote science. No, it's not divisive to defend the facts. That is not what the reporter asked you. The reporter asked if you were being hypocritical as a divisive populist uh, extremist leader on the left to be making comments about the divisive extremist populist leader on the right that was the question but my oh my this man can do nothing wrong and that answer just proved that all right uh that being said september 19th which is the queen's uh, funeral uh there will be a national holiday here's what the pm had to say on that uh, declaring an opportunity for Canadians to mourn uh, on Monday uh, is going to be important. So uh, for our part, we will be uh, um, letting uh, federal employees know uh, that Monday will be a day of mourning where they will not work. Let's go surfing. Huh? Are you in? Tofino, who's going? I hear the waves are great this time of year. Let's go surfing. We got Monday off. Oh, no, that was truth and reconciliation the first day of. We all know that uh, the last few days, the federal liberals have been in New Brunswick at a cabinet retreat and uh, have finally, I guess, uh, been listening to Canadians and have um, read the polls and such that Canadians are top five issues are all economic issues with the exception of probably uh, health care, which will always be the case. And, uh, you know, whether it's affordability with groceries, housing, energy, uh, what have you. So out of nowhere, all of a sudden there's a cabinet retreat to tackle the affordability crisis. What does it mean for the average Canadian? Let's bring in Franco uh, Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayer Federation Federal Director, and is with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I am well. Thanks for having me on. Is there anything here for the average Canadian? What does this mean? Uh, all of a sudden, the uh, Prime Minister has forgotten about handguns and taxing the rich and climate change, and now he's talking about the same thing that every other Canadian has, has been talking about for quite a while, and that's affordability. What can he do? What's he done here? Well, you know what? Unfortunately, I don't think it means much for the average Canadian. I think that's what's so unfortunate about this. You know, inflation, nearly four decades high, and it's not just inflation today. I mean, people have been struggling for months and months and months with the rising cost of living. I mean, like, I'm sure you hear callers all the time telling you this. I hear this all the time, is that people are struggling to afford ground beef. People are struggling to Mm -hmm. afford gas on their way to work. And today, uh, really the flagship policy announcement, if we could call it that, is GST rebates. Now, look, I mean, I, I, I'm, I think rebates will help some of the Canadians who get that back, right, the lower and modest income Canadians. But the truth of the matter, if the government is essentially acknowledging that it's increasing the cost of the till with its sales tax, then just cut taxes, because this GST rebate is really just nibbling around the edges. And by the way, the government's own numbers show that this would even help even a third of Canadians. So more than two-thirds of Canadians won't even be helped by the GST rebate. Uh, what about energy? Is there anything he can do there that, you know, because obviously it takes energy, that affects everything in the supply chain, groceries, yep. what have you. Uh, isn't that one area where you could do something and see uh, at least a bit more change? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and step number one is to stop making things worse. And I mean that. We've seen the carbon tax go up three times during the middle of the pandemic. Three times. The carbon tax is now adding an extra 11 cents to the price of gas. But Mr. Trudeau says he's going to continue to crank it up until it reaches nearly 40 cents per litre by the end of the decade, which is coming way too quick, I might add. But no, there is something that Mr. Trudeau and his government can do if they temporarily scrapped all gas taxes at the pumps. They could save... A driver in Canada, depending on the province, between 18 and 30 cents per liter every time you fuel up. Now, here's the thing. We have seen so many different countries push for gas tax relief. We saw the United Kingdom announce huge gas tax relief. South Korea cut its gas taxes by 30%. You also had Germany, Netherlands, Italy, Ireland, Israel, India, Peru, Poland. You have Alberta, Newfoundland and Labrador, New Jersey, Florida, They have all announced gas tax relief to help make life a little bit more affordable, but the Trudeau government continues to raise taxes at the pumps. Uh, What about uh, in this affordability announcement, uh, housing and dental? Uh, Obviously, we know the NDP is uh, holding this government's uh, uh, feet to the fire in regard to dental. What about what was introduced here? Well, look, if we look at all of the funding, I've seen a few numbers that have been released today. If you look at the whole package included, it's $4.5 billion. But where are they getting the $4.5 billion from? No, like seriously, this government is already running a $53 billion deficit this year after a deficit that was $100 billion last year and $300 billion the year before. So where is the government getting the money from? And this is one thing that the government hasn't been honest with Canadians about. So it has two options. Either it's going to cut its spending somewhere else in the budget, but we haven't seen this government willing to do that, or it's going to raise taxes. And with the huge deficit that the government has, it can't just raise taxes on the rich. It's going to have to raise taxes on everyday Canadians if it keeps making these types of announcements. Or, even worse, the government's just going to continue to use the printing press 
to fund its deficits, which is the inflation tax. Too many dollars chasing too few goods. So I think there's more concern, and we've heard the big banks talk about it as well, economists there, that more government spending is going to continue to fuel inflation. Uh, interesting article, uh, Franco, in the, uh, I believe it's the Toronto Star today. The Bank of Canada, this is the headline. The Bank of Canada, for the first time in history, is losing money. Is that a problem, <laughs> is the headline. And th- this talks about how uh, very, very slow the bank was to increase rates, then, you know, increasing them very, very quickly in a short period of time. Now they're suffering from the same thing that everybody else is. Yeah, but it is a problem for taxpayers. Now, it's it's um, it's a little bit uh, in the weeds here policy, if, you, if you'll just allow me to go on a bit of a tangent. But essentially, if the Bank of Canada runs a surplus, it's required to give some of that money back to the taxpayer over a certain period of time. So if the bank is losing money, that is a big deal uh, for taxpayers. So wh- I guess now it's time to ask, is the Bank of Canada going to look at ways to save money within its own operations? Now, your listeners might remember when Tiff Macklem, um, when the Bank of Canada was essentially telling businesses that they uh, shouldn't be pricing in inflation when they're raising wages. Well, that to me seems a little bit tone deaf, especially as you have the Bank of Canada in 2020 and 2021, when it failed to do its job to keep inflation low, hand out $45 million in bonuses and pay raises. You know, the only thing that is going higher, up faster in Canada than the inflation rate is the Bank of Canada's labour costs. We saw the Bank of Canada's labour costs increase by 13% in 2020, increased by another 12% in 2021. So I think it's time that the Bank of Canada uh, really does what every other Canadian and business have done in the last two years and take a look in the mirror and figure out a way to find and save some money. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayer Federation Federal Director. Uh, the Cabinet Retreat, the Federal Liberals uh, have been on in New Brunswick, promising to tackle the affordability crisis. Doesn't seem to be much there for the average Canadian. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. The other story, which uh, has just been absolutely uh, bizarre, as we saw unfold uh, yesterday afternoon, and starting in Mississauga, then ending up in Milton and finishing off in Hamilton at the York uh, York Road Cemetery. So to talk about uh, all of this, including the tragic loss of Traffic Service Constable Andrew Hong, uh, let's bring in Karen Lieberman. Uh, Senior Digital Broadcast Journalist with Global News and with us now. Karen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. So, Karen, this is a very bizarre case, and, and obviously with the SIU involved now, uh, a lot of it's on lockdown. What do we know? Uh, many of us here were surprised to see this end up in Hamilton. We thought that uh, somebody had been apprehended in Halton. Start at the beginning, and, and what you know is unfolded here. For sure. So the timeline starts around uh, 2.15, and this is when this constable, Andrew Hong, is on a break from a training operation that he was running in Mississauga. So he's a Toronto police officer, uh, 19 years with Toronto Traffic Services, 22 years in total with the police service, and he's in Mississauga running this training exercise with police from York Region, uh, police from Peel Region, and they're on a lunch break. And on a lunch break, they sort of go their separate ways, and he goes to a Tim Hortons restaurant. And that is when he is uh, caught up in, in this unprovoked ambush attack. Uh, that is exactly how it was you know, referred to by Peel Police Chief. Um, and he was shot dead. He was killed at the scene. There was a second individual, uh, a civilian who was there who was also shot and, uh, and 
suffered life-altering injuries via gun, uh, gunshot wounds and was rushed to Sunnybrook Hospital. So this is around 2.15. We're in Mississauga. Um, and then, of course, there's a frenzy. And then, you know, police are everywhere, swarming, and then pe- people are running everywhere. And the suspect makes his way from Mississauga to Milton to this auto body shop on Bronte Street South in Milton. And this is around, let's say, 2.50. So, you know, 40 minutes later or so, half an hour maybe. Um, and the same suspect is then involved in a separate shooting, a triple shooting. So three people are hit by gunshot. Uh, one of them is killed. This is Shaquille Ashraf, who's a mechanic. He's the owner of that auto body shop, father of three, just a well-loved person in Milton. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person suffers critical injuries, and this third person is also injured. And then from there, um, you know, about two hours later, just after about 4.30, the suspect makes his way to Hamilton, and that is where there's an interaction with both Halton and Hamilton police, uh, and the suspect is shot dead. And, and as you say, as soon as the Special Investigations Unit is involved, you know, there's very little more information that we're going to learn, unfortunately, about that interaction uh, as of now. But but certainly just a wild afternoon, um, you know, multiple scenes uh, five police services involved, this chase, uh, multiple jurisdictions, um, and certainly a lot of concern and fear because there was this emergency alert that many of us would have seen on our, on our phones and on our mm. computers, um, you know, but an active shooter with very little other information. And so uh, certainly a lot of fear. Um, but by about 4.30, the suspect was, was shot and killed along with, you know, two other innocent victims. Um, uh, going back to that initial scene in Mississauga, uh, and we've heard the word ambush used that, mm-hmm. that, uh, the officer was just sitting in his car and, and, and was shot. So is there any indication there was any sort of crime that this person was fleeing or that they just started shooting randomly? Very, very confusing still about what the exact details were. In fact, I heard that he was not in his car, that he'd been sitting um, either outside the restaurant, uh, you know, where, regardless of where he was, this officer was. And, and I, you know what, Karen, I stand corrected on that because that's just something that I, I just assumed out of the top of my head because it was an ambush type thing. So there you go. Let yeah. us know what the facts are here, Karen. Go ahead. Yeah. So it's my understanding that he was, I believe, outside, certainly was eating. So whether he was seated outside or inside, actually, I don't know for certain um, at this point. But we do know that he was, you know, in uniform. Um, and it seems as though he was uh, believed to be shot from behind. And, you know, when you hear about an ambush or some sort of unprovoked attack, you know, seemingly the victim had no idea it was coming, you know, and that's so sad because obviously he was just sitting there, you know, minding his own business um, and this would have occurred. And, you know, we spoke today with the unit commander, uh, acting superintendent of Toronto Traffic Services, who was really uh, quite emotional, actually, um, Matthew Moyer. And he said that, you know, Police officers don't necessarily let their guard down, but you know when, when you're sitting in an environment eating a sandwich, it's very different than when you're answering a call, right? When you're when you're yeah, called yeah. and you know you're going somewhere, you know you're on alert, you're looking everywhere, you're you're aware. When you're sitting and having a cup of coffee or eating a sandwich, it, it's quite a different scenario, and there is a sense of you know freedom or, or a sense of confidence that you wouldn't otherwise have when you're active, mm. right, on duty. And so um, and so this was quite sad for him as he described that. And so this is what happened to Constable Andrew Hong, uh, was pronounced dead on the scene. Uh, that other person, um, again, like I said, life-altering injuries. Um, and then the mechanic shot dead. I mean, it's just it's a terrible, terrible mm. chain of events. Um, yeah. 
Obviously, after Mississauga headed to Milton in the body shop and such, um, and we're hearing about this man that that lost his life and, and how he was, uh, you know, one of the mm. pillars of the community and such. Did any idea if the shooter and he knew each other? Was there any relationship there? Is, is there anybody that knows the alleged shooter or the shooter? I will tell you that my colleague, Catherine McDonald, um, our veteran crime reporter, was digging into this all day. Um, and so she's certainly on this. I, I know that the suspect, the, the gunman's name is, is Sean Petrie, 30 years old. Um, again, we know that he is dead. We know that he, we saw a picture of him, right? When, when, mm. when the police put this yep. picture out, he was dressed all in black. He was wearing this yellow construction vest. Um, I, I know that there's no word on a motive as of yet. Um, I, I heard that he potentially worked at the auto repair shop, but I'm not certain um, again, I know Catherine was working a lot on that, and we'll probably have more on that tonight on, on Global News. But, but today, you know, really just a focus on these victims and, um, and, and Constable Andrew Hong. And, and you know, what a loss it is. Um, you know, this is a person who dedicated 22 years of his life to policing. And, hmm. you know, just a big guy. <laughs> Everyone describes yeah. him as this, this yeah. big guy. And, you know, so many people today said to me, like, I know, Karen, it's a cliche to say gentle giant, but this, that was Andrew Hong. He was that person. He was that larger-than-life person who was well-loved. Uh, Chief Raymer, Toronto Police Chief James Raymer, was at Traffic Services today, and, and, you know, he mentioned to us that he went in and spoke to, like, 20 civilian employees of, the, of Traffic Services, and all of them knew Hong by name. You know, all of them knew mm. him as Andrew, and that they're just so devastated by the loss. Tragic, tragic loss of life for Constable uh, Andrew Hong, and it's senseless, obviously, and very little details at this point, but uh, mm-hmm. we'll obviously be following this. Uh, Karen Lieberman with us, Senior Digital Broadcast Journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Karen, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Royal Watchers have no doubt been glued to the screen today watching um, uh, the coffin of Queen Elizabeth uh, leave Scotland, eventually arrive in London, and then the motorcade uh, from uh, the Air Force Base to uh, Buckingham Palace. Eerily quiet while people waited for the arrival early evening there now. Uh, And then uh, once the motorcade arrived, just the whole place erupts uh, in applause. It was something to see. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert and self Scribe Royal Watcher. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, hello, Scott. <laughs> you have been glued to that TV for so long. Now you've picked up an accent. I'm not surprised. I couldn't help it. Every time you say Royal Watcher, I want to, you know, you know have I some tea. wave or speak in an accent. So, anyway, there you, you go. Can't see me, so, I'm not waving. So this is something, and I, I know somebody else who's a, a very avid uh, royal watcher, my father-in-law, and um, like honestly, just from beginning to end, been watching this continuously. Are you doing the same thing? No, I'm not, but I'm certainly keeping up with it. You know, you can't help it because you get all the news alerts, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, the, this is happening now, this is happening now, this is a statutory holiday. So you can't help but be consumed with it. And if you notice, there's a very certain protocol when you're watching TV about uh, how and who and what they're wearing um, at, when they're reporting on the Queen's funeral. There <laughs> is a dress code. There is a way to talk about this. I mean, this is very much an orchestrated media plan 
uh, to the nines. So you'll always notice that in the first few days that um, many of the on-air hosts were all in black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they were always talking about the queen, uh, the recently deceased queen. So I find that to be interesting. But, they, you know, there's also other narratives that are starting to pop up now, too. Some good, some bad. But really, there is a, a great deal of reverence. And if you're watching the coverage coming out of Scotland, it was really quite something to see. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm watching and poor Camilla's doing head dips and, you know, nothing against this. But she's like these people must be exhausted. Uh, having to put up with the pomp and pageantry of it all while they're trying to mourn the the death of of their mother and such. And I found it also fascinating when they started singing uh, God Save the King, and it looked like it almost brought King Charles to to tears. It was it was very emotional to watch. Oh, I know. And, you know, it took people no time in order to become used to the pronouns, which should be a lesson to us all, to be quite honest. Um, How many times did you call him him Prince? How many times did you call him? How many times did you call him Prince before you started calling him King? I know you start like, and you go, oh, no, King Charles, King Charles III. You know, he has very quickly embraced this role. Naturally, he's been uh, training for it all his life. And I think that one of the things that really struck me was that when they had sort of like an honor guard surrounding the, the casket in the Scottish castle, and this was the first time that a woman actually um, participated in this, which was Princess Anne. So, yeah. you know, this is a 24-7 type of... Um, you know, type of uh, reverence that has to go on. And this is not going to stop basically until uh, the funeral is over on Monday. All right. uh, Starting to get different angles of this story. Many uh, debating the relevance of the monarchy. Uh, Does this strengthen it? I mean, we're hearing that there's a mad rush on royal souvenirs. I heard that too, and that you can't get a mug to save your life. Yeah. However, you know, they did ask if there was also a rush on King Charles memorabilia, and people are saying, well, not quite yet. Let's give him some time before we decide to invest. So I found that to be very interesting. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see when, you know, you talk about, um, you know, how, what, you know, what does this mean for the monarchy going on? Because now you're starting to see, Scott, a lot of narratives popping up in the, me- in the media about yeah. how Prince Charles has amassed his wealth, the great wealth of the monarchy. Should we still be paying into this? What about the colonies that don't want to be colonies anymore? So this might take, it'll be interesting to see if Charles embraces a modernity into the monarchy as it goes on or whether he remains steadfast into the way that it's always operated Uh, and many have talked about the amount of money this brings in for the uk uh every year and last time i checked anybody that really wanted it out of it out of it that badly they were pretty much open to letting you go so it'd be interesting to see where that discussion goes Oh, a hundred percent. And I also think about how are they going to make the monarchy relevant to a demographic that is much younger? Because if you look at all the people that are waiting 30, I said 30 hours in line to pay their respects to the casket, to the queen, that are there a lot of young people? Are there a lot of people under 35 in that line? Um, From what I'm seeing on the TV images, no. So I think that it's going to have to be interesting to see how Charles brings 
William to the fore, maybe in an even more advanced role uh, in order to start um, maybe creating relevancy to that younger demographic. So, you know what? It's an interesting time for the monarchy. And I think that you and I are going to be talking about this for quite some time to come. Uh, September 19th, her funeral. It will be a national holiday pretty much everywhere. Uh, and as in the UK, it is a national holiday here, but not observed by the provinces. Your thoughts on all of this? Will we see this day always be a holiday? Well, here's something interesting. I was on a Zoom call at the time, so everybody had the same breaking news alert from whatever. <laughs> Long weekend. They follow. Yeah. They're, they're, well, actually, no. What they said was, say, what? Is this a stat yeah. holiday? Do we have to pay people for that, too? That was the reaction. <laughs> that was the reaction. So when I was reading all the news reports that were just coming out, I was, you know, I was thinking nothing, none of it really had any of the, that type of detail to it. It may just be sort of as a remembrance. So the notion of a sad holiday is great. I think, you know, if you're, you know, a kid mm. uh, at school, you get another holiday. But if you're uh, an employer who has to actually pay people to stay home on another sad holiday, from my very anecdotal poll of about 10 people on a Zoom call, they weren't happy. There you go. And by the way, Ontario, the kids, uh, as across the country, it looks like we'll all be in school. Uh, however, the Prime Minister will be surfing, I understand. Oh, that can't be true. <laughs> Alyssa Freeman with us. Yes, you Off bet. The Alyssa of Dover. There you go. <laughs> it's the second time I heard that today, actually. There so you go. I'd all like right. to think you're original, but you're the, I don't know. I think everybody has that in the back of their mind. Warped minds think a thing alike, that's for sure. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Still trying to make sense of the tragic uh, shooting of a Toronto police officer yesterday uh, involving three crime scenes in Mississauga, Milton, and uh, and obviously ending in Hamilton at the York uh, Boulevard uh, uh, Cemetery and such. And uh, again, we know very little because the SIU has taken over the, the investigation, but it appears that uh, this officer was just eating his lunch. It was on a lunch break and was ambushed, as they say. So obviously he didn't even see this uh, coming, nor was in a position to defend himself. Uh, it, it's very bizarre uh, when you realize, or well, just initially, what has gone down and, and, and what uh, what uh, happened over the course of, of this af- yesterday afternoon. And, you know, it's one thing for an officer to be killed defending the citizenry in some sort of heroic or, or, or crime scene or what have you, but to be just eating lunch is, is very bizarre. And how is the community and the policing community absorbing all this? Let's bring in Steve Jordan's professor of psychology. University of Toronto and is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, You too, Scott. Good to be with you. Uh, I understand that uh, you have created a free course for police officers uh, to help understand anxiety pressures. Uh, Expand on that a bit. Yeah, yeah. During the pandemic, I, I had created a course for the general public, and then I was um, there was outreach from Toronto Police Services. Uh, Sergeant David Haynes, who's a wellness officer for 31 Division in Toronto, and it's it's the heavy guns area. And basically, mm-hmm. he was saying, you know, at that point in time, how much stress a lot of his colleagues were under, and he was hoping that we could create a course, um, you know, me with his guidance to kind of help them really understand and appreciate just how challenging their their jobs are. 
um, and then to try to understand how to manage that a little bit. Uh, and so as I took a deep dive, you know, we, we can sit back and we can kind of think of police work and we can say, yeah, that's probably pretty stressful. But then when I really thought about it, knowing all I do about psychology and, and the way that anxiety works and what triggers it, the more I thought about the police job, the more I really had a deep, deep appreciation for what we ask them to do. Uh, in fact, one of this, the sections of, of the course is called the unreasonable ask, and, and that refers to the expectation we as society have uh, in terms of their ability to handle really high levels of stress. Uh, and that's both chronic stress and really acute stress. So events, you know, where, where it's life and death, um, those sorts of things. So yeah, I, I've worked with them. I teach a little bit as part of their regular training now. And uh, I've got such a deep appreciation for all they do for us. Uh, and even as Mayor John Tory said, uh, even with this event that has happened and the death of this colleague, they have to continue moving on. And as yesterday, finding finding the suspect and such, how different is it for officers compared to the average person? Um, obviously, the pandemic's been difficult for everybody. But again, if you're on the front lines of anything, healthcare or policing, fire, what have you, you're getting other people's problems as well. Discuss that a bit. Yeah, and, and basically when most of us are in these high stress situations, um, we quickly kind of give way to the emotional parts of our brain. The fight flight reflex um, takes hold. Mm. Police officers, we want them to come into a situation and handle it rationally, not, not have their emotional systems kind of take over. And that's a very natural reaction to have, especially when your life is threatened or potentially in danger. Uh, and so we really expect them to be able to go into those situations and dial back that very natural response and stay cool headed and yet still have it there because you know the moment somebody starts shooting them or or, or something mm. shooting towards them or something like that then they need that fight flight reflex so we really expect them to be able to balance their emotional reactions at a level that most of us couldn't even consider um, reaching I've, I've known a few and had some family members over the years. I, 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 I don't know how they do it. Um, what are police experiencing now? Uh, the membership, the colleagues, losing yeah. a colleague. What, what is that like? I mean, it's when I did some of the research, I looked at, you know, how anxiety and stress levels were and, and a lot of the data was was decades ago and, and they were already crazy high. But in the in the recent decades, we've really seen uh, another force come into play, which is the the sort of non appreciation by the general public of the yeah. of the force and, and for what they do, you know, the the things like, you know defund the police and, and, and things like this, yeah. you know, that hurts. If, if, if you're an officer and you know what, what the job is doing to you, what it's doing to your family, what it's doing to your relationships, but you're doing it out of a sense of, of duty and, you know, good reason. And then you have the general public who generally is suspicious, is waiting for you to make a mistake, has their cameras ready to put it on TV, mm. you know, and, and that's the climate they're working in um, over the last 10 or 20 years. And it really is a thankless, thankless job when it should be one where we're very thankful for the for the law and order they provide um, mm. none of us wants chaos and they are what stands between us and chaos yeah I, I knew one person who was on the police force service and then went to fire and he said whenever police arrive it's a negative it's a negative greeting he said yeah. whereas I can come into your house as a fireman put an axe through the door put water everywhere and as I'm leaving you're patting me on the back 
Yeah. Uh, he's, it's, it's an incredible contrast between the two. What about the way in which uh, this officer was killed? I mean, it wasn't like he was went out in a blaze and, and he's protecting yep. people. He was just sitting there eating his lunch. He was, he was obviously targeted for what he does. That really um, adds another layer because, you know, for example, I'll even talk about some of the anticipatory anxiety police officers face. When they go on a call, they never know if that call is going to be dangerous or not. And so yeah. every call has the potential of being life-threatening. And therefore, on the way to every call, their systems are already, you know, dealing with the anxiety of a potentially threatening situation. What this story suggests is going to Tim Hortons and having lunch. Yeah. is a potentially life-threatening situation all of a sudden. You know, they cannot even feel relaxed um, in that context anymore without the thought in their mind that, my God, somebody might walk up behind me and just because I'm wearing a uniform or just because potentially I have a gun that that person wants to get at, they could suddenly just kill me before I can even defend myself. And, and you know, that's such a threat. They're, they're trained to be in situations of life or death, to, to be in situations of threat. Um, but this guy didn't even know it was coming. And, and that has to really, really weigh on the minds of a lot of officers today. And I really feel for them. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about what the policing community is going through with the loss of one of their own uh, yesterday. And obviously, any killing is senseless, but this, uh, while well, the man was eating his lunch. Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We've certainly heard lots about uh, interest rates of late and inflation and the cost of of life for all of us and lots of chatter around uh, Canada's central bank and and how they are raising rates and the you know, many saying not quick enough. And then once they started too many too soon to the point where um, for the first time in history, uh, the Bank of Canada, this is a, a very unusual headline. The Bank of Canada, for the first time in history, is losing money. Is that a problem, it says. And that is the headline from the Toronto Star. And to talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton. He's here now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. I know this is complicated, Ian, but can you, in layman's terms, layperson terms, somehow explain what's going on here? And, and here's what I've sort of figured out, and, and maybe this can help uh, bring it down to our level. But it appears that with interest rates going up, uh, that also means the Bank of Canada has to pay out that interest uh, to people who, whose deposits it, can, it, it holds, and that's raising the amount of money it has to pay out. So they've sort of been caught in their own trap. Is that valid? Yes, essentially, yes. Let me just back up for a moment and go very big picture. Um, because the central central banks are very unusual institutions. They're not private commercial banks. You and I, or ordinary people, cannot walk into the bank cat and open up a bank yeah. account. Mm-hmm. They are the bank. That's why it's called the central bank. They're the bank for the government of a sovereign country called the U.S. or U.K. or Canada or Japan. And their job is to manage inflation, manage currencies. I didn't say control them or regulate them, but try to re- they try to influence them by entering the market through market actions like selling bonds, buying bonds, raising interest rates, cutting interest rates. So, and 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 so you're absolutely right. Um, and the other key point I want to make is the Bank of Canada is a, is a crown corporation. It means it's owned by the government of Canada, just like Canada Post Corporation, just like Export Development Corporation. 
just like Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. So first and foremost, if they lose money, the company does not fail. It's owned by the government. Mm -hmm. And so the government just absorbs its losses, just like Canada Post right now is losing money. And the government of Canada is absorbing it through its, its revenues. It has vast revenues over 400 billion a year. So in other words, nobody has to worry about the Bank of Canada failing or Canada Post or any of these other crown corporations owned by the government. But in terms of the concrete specifics, and I don't won't get into the weeds, I promise you, for your listeners. But the, the the bank decided to get into quantitative easing at the beginning of the pandemic. Let me just make it nice and simple. The reason they did that was because rates were already so low, they really had run out of runway. They had no more wiggle room. When you're already down around 1%, you know, you have nowhere to go, really. Back in the good old days, and I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, when I was a banker, um, you know, when rates were 8 or 9 or 10 or 12, you had lots and lots of wiggle room to raise rates or cut rates, reduce rates to influence the economy. And so they did. Rates went up, rates went down, lots of runway, lots of wiggle room, no need for quantitative easing. When rates go really, really low, as they've done in the last five or six or seven or eight years, I mean down into half of a percent, one percent, they were not running out of wiggle room to influence the economy through rate cuts. Therefore, they switched to quantitative easing. And without going into how it works, quantitative easing is another way to try to drive down the cost of borrowing and stimulate the economy. So now the economy has been really stimulated. We all know that. It's growing like crazy and the inflation is going through the roof, which is, by the way, a risk of quantitative easing. And the Federal Reserve has warned about this in the past. And they said, in theory, one of the downsides of QE is you can stimulate inflation. Well, that inflation arrived. So now they're saying, OK, let's stop. Let's back off. Stop doing our quantitative easing. But one of the prices they paid quantitative easing, you're buying up bonds in the market, in the bond market from banks or pension funds. And, and you have deposits as well that you owe money on. So when the bank raises the interest rates, it actually has to actually, like a commercial bank, pay mm. a higher interest rate on its deposits. Yeah. So its costs are going up, like you said. So now they're going to be losing money. They're going to be losing money. And so as a consequence, because they're losing money, they're go it's going to be passed on. Their losses are going to be passed on uh, to the to the government of Canada because the government of Canada owns them lock, stock, and barrel. Is this a result of printing just just simply printing too much money? Um, no, it's a consequence of a reversing quantitative easing and going into quantitative tightening. But then that begs the question, well, why did you go into quantitative easing? And their answer was, well, we wanted to save the economy when we went into, into the uh, pandemic. And uh, so the, as a result, uh, as a result they, the, that's really the trigger. There's a big debate about whether QE actually does stimulate the economy in the long run. I won't get into that debate at all, I promise you. But they made a decision, the Bank of Canada, Bank of England, uh, Federal Reserve, to go down that road. And once you go down that road, there's consequences. And this is one of the consequences of going down that road and going into quantitative easing in the first place. So to me, the real debate, the real debate is not whether the Bank of Canada is losing money or not. It's 
Why did we go down the road of quantitative easing when there were so many question marks about its effectiveness, uh, one, and two, the recognition by central bankers, including our central bank, that it could stimulate inflation. Well, guess what's happened in the last two years? I'm not blaming it all on QE. I'm yeah. not blaming it all on QE, but by God, we do have inflation today. And you got to ask the question, did QE contribute to the inflation we have today? They introduced it to stop deflation. Well, maybe they did too good a job. Maybe they hmm. so they stopped deflation so much, they introduced or, or at least exacerbated inflation and made the problem worse, which is the thought I want to leave with all your listeners. My complaint or critique is not that the bank is losing money. It'll be absorbed by the government of Canada. The question is, where did they become part of the problem instead of the solution? Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, the Central Bank, and what it is doing to get us through what we are going through and losing money as a result. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, we've certainly chatted over the last several months over uh, about travel and trying to get out and about as this global pandemic uh, slowly released us. Many people wanted to travel. There's been... Uh, hell in the passport office, hell at the airport, and uh, slowly things are uh, starting to get back to normal. Uh, Barry Choi is with us, travel expert. Uh, one of his recent articles in the Financial Post, Five Savvy Ways to say, uh, Save on Your Winter Vacation, and saying, now is the time to book if you do want to go away this year. Barry is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me, like always. So give us a bit of an update. How are we doing now? Are things easing up at all? as far as passport offices and airport issues? <laughs> well, you, it's two ways of looking at it, right? You could say that things are easing up in the sense that we're technically out of the peak summer season. A lot of kids are back to school. Uh, that said, you know, airport delays are still happening because, you know, the airlines haven't fully staffed up, airports haven't staffed up. So it's still common to see huge delays with baggage or when you're arriving back at customs. Uh, so it's getting better, but, you know, I don't want to paint this glorious picture because there are still some issues out there. Uh, sometimes you get travelers who plan months, year in advance and got the whole thing mapped out. Other people fly last minute, get the best deal. Does it matter, considering where we are with this uh, pandemic or coming out of it, if we do uh, plan early? Is that the best way or, or is it worth last minute? You know, I think right now a lot of people are starting to look towards the winter travels. You know, me personally, I finished my summer vacation. My daughter started school last week, and I am literally already ready for winter vacation. <laughs> uh, right? And it's funny because the data actually shows traditionally most people will just naturally search for uh, their travel plans three to four months in advance. So if you're looking to travel in December or January, that's actually right now. And what people may be surprised to hear, and it's actually not too surprising when you actually think about it, is the fact that airlines, hotels, vacation package operators, they all have the same data. They all know that you're searching for these vacations right now. So they're going to start offering discounts right now or very soon to get you to like buy in advance because it is really a good time to buy. Do they have to convince us to go? Uh, has the delays uh, affected that or is it, you know, two and a half years of a global pandemic? Get the heck out of my way. 
<laughs> again, this is one of those things that's it's a mad perspective, right? So yeah. if you're ready to travel, you're ready to travel, right? And those people who are mm. still worried about COVID-19, again, let's be clear, there is still a global pandemic. COVID is still a, a thing out there. So some people aren't ready to be ready to travel. But I will say some of the incentives are very enticing. Uh, you know, one good example is Air Canada Vacations just last week. They launched one of the biggest sales since the pandemic started. It's like buy one vacation package, get the second 50% off. And it has wow. travel dates between January 2nd and April 30th. Now, normally people wouldn't think that's relevant. But when you actually think about the dates, it's important because that time frame actually covers March break, Easter, uh, just after New Year. So these are times where it's typically more expensive and they're actually offering a sale at the same time. Uh, it's kind of like an incentive. They're telling you, hey, we're giving you that incentive to go somewhere sunny. You just got to book it. And of course, there's always a time frame. You got to book by October 4th. Uh, but that's like any deal out there. There's always a time frame. There's also always certain travel dates. But that's why when you see those deals, you should jump on them. Considering, you know, most flights were packed, are you surprised we're seeing sales? Not at all, right? Because like everyone's excited, or not, not everyone's excited to get back to travel. Airlines want to sell out. Uh, I, I feel like, like after seeing what happened in this past summer, in the sense that everyone was willing to travel, now the airlines are like, hey, you know what? Now's the time to go all in on sunny destinations because mm. that was traditionally a thing that people would go to pre-pandemic. But during the pandemic, let's be realistic. You know, people were very worried. What happens if I get COVID overseas? You know, am I going to have to quarantine? Uh, what are the issues? And, and when you look at the rules now, it practically feels like there are no rules. I hate to say it, right? So yeah. I, I think people are feeling a little bit more comfortable uh, if they are willing to travel down south or, or that they've assessed the situation and then they'll decide for them and their families what's best for them. Uh, no pun intended here, Perry, but is this a train wreck waiting to happen? Because here we are, uh, we're encouraging people to book for the future for winter. Uh, there's sales that, that, that allow you to jump on board early. Uh, March break, Christmas, heavy duty travel times. <laughs> are we going to see the same thing that we saw in the summer where, you know, they've sold all these seats, but now they just don't have enough staff to process it all? I think for sure we're going to see some of that again. You know, I want to give the airlines and the airports have benefited doubt. You know, we are talking about three months from now. Hopefully, they'll have things uh, staffed up by then. That said, as a consumer, I would tell people, it's like, hey, don't take those chances. Make sure you purchase travel insurance to protect yourself in case mm. you're unable to travel due to COVID-19 or some other reason. Or if you've got heavy delays, I wouldn't be relying on the air passenger rights uh, for me to get compensation. At least if you have travel insurance, you're guaranteed something and it only takes a few hours. You're not guessing or gambling when the airline is going to pay you back if they even pay you back. So uh, you said uh, airline or sorry, travel insurance. What other things should people consider when they're they're trying to make this uh, these plans to go away this winter? What else should we be aware of? You know, something you and I have been talking about for the last couple of months, and I hope some of the listeners have listened, is get your passport. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like the delays are still there. Again, they've gotten better. You know, I, I'll admit passport Canada ha or Service Canada has done an incredible job to, to process these passports. Uh, that said, you know, if, if you're thinking about traveling in the winter, we're talking about three or four months out. That's not that long away. You know yeah. what I mean? Like some people mailed their, their passports three or four months ago and they still haven't got it back yet. Uh, so that is something I would get on personally. And, you know, we we're just talking about travel insurance. You, you know, I would take the time to at least research in advance so you kind of understand how it works. The last thing you want to do is make a last minute decision about travel insurance and not being informed about how it works.
Barry Choi with us, travel expert. If you're considering traveling this winter, might want to get on that now. There are some deals out there. Barry, thanks for the time. Pack the bags. We'll see you when you get back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, still lots of questions, uh, more questions than answers when it comes to the tragic shooting of a uh, Toronto police officer uh, in Mississauga and then a Milton man outside of his, or uh, rather at his uh, body shop in, in Milton, and then finished in Hamilton at the York Boulevard Cemetery, of all places. And many are questioning, including those of us that were um, on the air yesterday, trying to follow all of this uh are questioning what kind of happened and were we really alerted to what was going on you might remember we did get an emergency alert but it had very few details and shortly after it was issued we had heard that a a suspect had uh was in custody so uh many questions and again not a lot of answers at this point as the siu is investigating uh three different crime scenes and uh not a lot of information at this point uh but of course will be forthcoming let's bring in sean sparling retired deputy chief of sault st marie police currently president uh, president of investigative solutions network and is with us now sean thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah thank you for your time today Sean, what were your thoughts as you started to see this uh, unravel, unroll yesterday? What are your thoughts on on what we know? Well, I'll just uh, open up by saying uh, just my condolences to the officer and his family and to the Toronto Police Service mm-hmm. and to the other fellow who was, uh, who was killed as well. Just an absolute tragedy. Um, as things unfolded yesterday, it was obviously a very din- dynamic situation that uh, really taxed uh, all the police services involved in the emergency services. And it... Uh, it really was a, a very chaotic uh, event by, by, all, by all accounts. Uh, many are talking about the emergency alert. I remember I was on the air when this came across uh, my phone, and uh, we did get other information that described the, uh, the shooter and, and described the vehicle, but there wasn't much information on that initial alert. What are your thoughts? Well, I saw the initial alert there that went on. I agree with you. There wasn't uh, a lot of information in there other than saying that there was an active shooter. I did see some other social media and uh, publications from, I believe it was from the Peel Regional Police, uh, with some pretty good descriptions, including the uh, license plate and whatnot. So the information was out there, maybe just not all in one concise place, such as that emergency alert that went to everybody's cell phones. And then it seemed that uh, once the alert was issued, that it was shortly after that, this it all had come to an end. Is this, and, and again, I'm playing Monday uh, morning quarterback and hindsight's 2020. Um, should this have been done sooner? Well, it's really hard to say. Like, uh, it's hard to say how fast they appreciated uh, the the linkage between the the two events, and it's also hard to say how fast they actually had the uh, the vehicle description. Uh, it looks like they had a, a video of the the suspect, and they put that out uh, as well. So that would take some time to gather. Again, like uh, some of these things, like from one event to the other, was about thirty five minutes. I think it was. And then it was about uh, two hours in total before you had a complete description with photos and stuff uh, put out to the media. That's pretty quick. I know in uh, today's day and age with uh, social media, we're yeah. hoping to have it faster, but that's fairly quick. Mm. Um, but it depends on how fast they had the information as well. Um, many are trying to piece this together. Obviously, uh, everything's been, the communication's been shut down because it, it's such a wide crime scene and the SIU is involved. What does your gut tell you about this? What do you read from this? Well, certainly the first one uh, looked like a totally random attack. Uh, the, this, uh, the suspect went after a uniformed officer, probably because solely because he was a uniformed officer. 
and uh, that's just that much more tragic. Uh, my gut feeling is that he had some sort of connection to that body shop, and then uh, the rest of it was uh, probably good police work. They come across him, and they uh, had an encounter with him at the cemetery. Um, it, it's just, uh, again, the uh, the SIU puts in that uh, cone of silence, which is uh, to, in itself is not very transparent, but that's just the way it is uh, right now. It would be nice for them to share some more information as soon as they could. As a former chief, what um, or deputy chief, what must those officers have been going through at that time when there's the initial crime scene in Mississauga and then the way it finally ended? I mean, you know, as the mayor of Toronto pointed out, not only do they lose a member, but now they have to get up on the wheel and do the job. How difficult is that? Well, exactly. Um, those are very good words uh, from Mayor Tory. It would have been uh, absolutely traumatic for them at the scene, but my guess is that they uh, they put their game faces on very quick and had to deal with what they had. And then the rest of the policing in the in the area, all the way down through Hamilton and uh, and Halton and whatnot, they had to be professional and deal with the situation that they had. They are going to grieve and they're going to go through a process and it's going to be difficult. But at first and foremost, the professional police officers, and this, uh, by all counts, it appears that's how they acted. Uh, and what does this, what does the membership go through? Give us, give us an idea. What's it like when you see one of your peers fall? Well, it's, it's absolutely tragic. The, it's heartbreaking. The first and foremost you think about is his family, because um, they're going to deal with this for the rest of their lives as well. You think about your colleagues and you think about yourselves and your own families. Um, it's very, very difficult. Um, they'll have a grieving process. Some will uh, be affected by this for their, uh, for their life. Uh, but there will be a grieving process, and a lot will have to do with uh, how they get together around the funeral and uh, the events afterwards. But they'll, they'll have their own ways in dealing with it, but it's not going to be easy. Sean Sparling with us, retired Deputy Chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, uh, currently President of Investigative Solutions Network, commenting on the tragic shooting of a Toronto police officer yesterday and a Milton man at a uh, body shop and the ensuing chase and uh, whatever happened next. We still have to wait for those final answers. Sean, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Great. Thanks for your time. Take care. And if it is divisive to point out that vaccines have saved millions, billions of lives, the vaccines are safe, and the best way through this pandemic, which we've perhaps ended the acute phase, but it will continue in various forms, and we need to continue to stay vigilant. If people are calling a respect for science and an upholding and defense of facts divisive, but then perhaps people need to take a careful look at those who are saying that. Oh! Oh, that's when a reporter asked the Prime Minister if he was being hypocritical by calling Pierre Polyev divisive when, uh, you know, we have what we have. Hi, I would like to introduce the divisive populist extremist leader on the left to the divisive populist extremist leader on the right. There you go. Have at it, boys. Uh, I, I think this is uh, going to be absolutely fascinating as far as politics, watching this from the sidelines. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Doing all right, Scott. That's right. Pot, meat, kettle. It is pretty funny. And the reporter, unfortunately, we didn't play the clip, but the reporter said, like, are you not being hypocritical by saying that he divides Canadians and you don't? And I, I, I just couldn't believe the answer in which he gave. What are your thoughts on all of this? Because to me, like I said, it's populist, divisive, extremist extremism on both sides of this coin. Yeah, and I think they're each going to try and win the battle and say, the other guy is worse than me. Um, and certainly, Paglia feels like he's got wind in his sails. He had a comprehensive win on the weekend, as you know, uh, other than one MP announcing today that he's leaving the caucus, Conservative caucus, to sit as an independent. Um, Paglia is going to feel like he's got lots of space to move on the right-hand side. He's going to feel like, as you heard in his speech on Saturday night and then his speech yesterday, Countries frustrated with the liberals are frustrated that they don't get affordability. So I don't see him toning down the rhetoric. While on the other side, the liberals are going to try and paint Pierre Polyev as the, you know, the punky pugilist who's a little bit out there um, that they've seen in Parliament for the last number of years. So I don't see a, a great change in plans, despite you know the faux calls for responsible dialogue from uh, both sides. Um, can the Prime Minister continue to attack Pierre Polyev and win? Can he just use fear-mongering, you know, no. uh, cryptocurrency, abortion, all of that stuff to to continue to scare Canadians? They're going to try, but I think if they stick to that game plan, it'll be a bit like the Conservatives going after uh, Justin Trudeau in 2015 for not being ready for the job, and that mm. didn't work out for the Conservatives. I think uh, Polyev has tapped into something. He seems to be the one federal politician right now, and this can, of course, change, but the one federal politician right now who is connecting more with at least conservative Canadians uh, on their economic challenges, the personal struggles that they're having. I mean, all you need to look, uh, uh, Scott, is over the course of the summer and the, the disconnect that seemed to be engulfing the liberals. And, of course, last week, Krishia Friedland, the deputy, finance, deputy prime minister and finance minister, when asked about all of this, said, well, Canadians are working hard. They're going to need some better lines. Um, and the liberals ought to be concerned because where Polyev is digging in, at, at least during this leadership race, again, I say it could all change, but he is connecting with younger Canadians, Gen yeah. Z and millennials, who tend to have in the past looked to the Liberals and the New Democrats before they've gone to the Conservatives. Trudeau won a majority in 2015 because he was able to cut into that group and take them from the NDP. So uh, they can go with the old playbook, but they would probably be misdiagnosing some of the challenges they have if they went that way. Uh, the Prime Minister saying, you know, if you believe that, um, you know, the vaccines didn't save people, uh, cryptocurrency is the future, then I guess we're divisive. Is that an appropriate answer for that question? Well, it's a dodge, and it's where the Liberals are going to go, right? Because certainly there was a poll out, uh, what, a week ago or two weeks ago from Nanos Research, a reputable company that said... 70% of Canadians would have discomfort with a political leader or a politician who uh, was supportive of the convoy. So they're going to keep mm -hmm. trying to cut cut into all of that, too. So you know, I know you, you and I and the listeners, do you think you're going to get a straight answer to a question, Scott? Breaking news. No! Yeah. So how does Pierre Polyev address these comments uh, from the liberals directed at the cryptocurrency, the freedom convoy you have mentioned? Uh, how how does he how does he answer to that? 
Well, he's tried to avoid it generally. His, his two main messages that I have seen, the two speeches I didn't see him today, I just heard the clip that you played and I've seen some social media coverage, have been about staying off that subject and focusing on the economy and going after the things that have worked. Sometimes, as we know, even in our personal lives, avoidance is the best uh, option. Uh, I think, though, he's going to find that there'll be, once we're past the, the period of um, memorializing and mourning for the Queen, the Libs will probably do a fairly big ad push and communications push on all of this. So uh, he's going to have to find another way to to push back on that. Um, part of it, though, is not to talk about it anymore, even when it comes up and try and change the question uh, or the direction. He's only taken, as you know, two questions from journalists since he has won, and that was today. So I think he's going to try and manage the message by staying on his current message. Uh, many were concerned that his uh, leadership campaign was too divisive and that if he tried that during an election campaign that, that Justin Trudeau would win. Do you think we're going to change? You see a change in that. Does he need to change his stance? I, I, I look, I think if he can focus on the economy, as he's been doing, then he doesn't have to do the so-called grand pivot. If the election's about the economy and he's picking up younger voters, there may be even, you know, people who identify as progressive conservatives uh, and, and others who might hold their nose and, and say, all right, he's a better choice given uh, the way we, where we find ourselves now. So uh, I, I think that will depend on the timing and circumstance of it. Do we? Th- do you think, and, uh, you know, obviously from the last clip I played, I- I'm guessing no, but do you think the liberals will change their tone? Many have said that they're just not listening. Many have said that there's a very, very, very polite arrogance about them. Um, will they change that tone, do you think? Uh, hard, for, hard for them to do, but, I mean, give uh, Trudeau credit. He's been good at finding the right tone at the right time. So I will, you know, but, but sometimes when behaviors are habitual and you've been in power for uh, almost seven years, changing the way you do things is difficult, particularly when the players are all the same. I think what they will try and do, and you saw a bit of that today, is up their game on the economy. They know that they have been seen to be at sea when it's uh, dealing with the, the, the plight and challenges of of Canadians, so you saw them announce three measures today. I think they'll they'll get pressure from their own caucus to try and do more to at least appear to be giving a damn about the plight of Canadians, whether it's good economic policy or not. That's what they will do. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director Abacus Data, talking about uh, well the fight is on between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau. How will it end? We'll wait and see. Tim, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And, of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Good afternoon, Scott. Hope you're having a great time. A spectacular time, Scott. <laughs> I got lost there. I'm sorry. I didn't know where the heck I was going to go there. All I've right. been there. I've been there. <laughs> exactly. Wait a second. Many- words? I have to say words? That's right. Look, something shiny has distracted yeah. me. All right. So uh, September 19th is the uh, the Queen's funeral. It will be a national day of mourning. It's a federal holiday. 
Um, I guess there's some provinces, the Atlantic provinces will honor this. Uh, there's some provinces that whenever there's a Fed holiday, they just double up. And then there's other uh, provinces that don't do that. Uh, Ontario, uh, Quebec, and the rest, uh, an example of that. Should we be getting off the 19th? Should we have the day off? Should it be, rather than like Remembrance Day, should it be like uh, the 24th of May? You mean every year or just yeah, this yeah. one time? Yeah, well, it looks like this is just a one time, but I'm thinking, why not do it all the time? Well, you know, look, let's, I think we only have most months. We only have one stat holiday. I think we're four to five short. I I I think we should, we should bulk up. If we, how about a stat week every month? Hey, go big or go home. Uh, Look, I, I I don't, I don't object Uh, under the circumstances. um, I don't really object. She was the monarch for 70 years. It's not like she was in, you know, in the office for 12 minutes, um, you know. So in this particular case, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, however, uh, it does seem as though governments tend to give days off rather quickly, where the private sector not so much, which may say something about what each of those two different areas has to worry about as far as like making a living and paying bills and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, obviously there is uh, the Chamber of Commerce that spoke up. They don't want Ontario to to follow this. Obviously, it's very very short notice uh, to do something like this. I can certainly I can certainly understand that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, some are saying that you know the feds give it off, uh, but you know the provinces don't. Uh, boo hoo hoo hoo. Should should what should they be the same? Should if the feds give it off, then the provinces should give it off? I don't know. I mean, so then if you do it, do do you do it the other way? If a province gives yeah. a day off, does the federal government have to then say, well, we got to be, you know, we got to be equal. Look, if we, th- this is a real area of consternation for some people because we don't give every religious holiday of every faith off. Mm. We just don't. Um, if we were to suddenly do that and sort of leave the tradition of the country, because for look, for, for most of the people now, most of these holidays that we take, while they may be based on our religious tradition, people don't go to it in a religious sense. Um, I don't think most people, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think most people in this country are going to to mass or to service on Good Friday, for example. Yeah. Um, but we can't possibly run a functioning country if every single thing, every single person has to be given the day off for. We can't. We can't. This is I mean, very- I've got, I've got on my computer, maybe you have a Mac, I don't know, but on my Mac, I have a, a calendar that automatically loads up and it puts on there automatically all the various days off or national days or whatever else. Mm-hmm. We'd never have anybody at work. That'd be cool. All right. So this is very much like Remembrance Day, where some will and, and some won't. And it's the same, really, debate as we have around Remembrance Day every year, it seems. Yeah. And I can't, uh, you know, this is embarrassing. I can't remember. To this point, we haven't done remembrance day as a stat holiday have we not for a while no no i think we get you know what i think we get it as a stat but then because we're federally regulated and then we take it as a lewd day i don't know it's it's (laughs) there are (laughs) let's get hr on the phone no but like even okay so we were making plans for october with our family and i was even having to check and go wait a sec do we get a holiday month do we get thanksgiving monday off i don't even remember I mean, yeah. honestly, mm-hmm. Scott, I remember about four days of the year that I know we get off. We get Christmas, we get New Year's, we get Boxing Day, we get Good Friday. Um, 
we get family day, we get July 1st, there's six. All right. So, and yeah. on May 24th. So there's seven that I can think of. I'm missing a few. Look, we get back to the start of this question. Should we all be taking this off? I, I don't, in this particular case, I don't have a problem with it. I do think though, that we do see governments in recent years. We saw Dalton McGinty try and buy an election, quite frankly, won an election by promising people family day. Give yeah. people a day off. Hey, I'll win sure. an election with that one. Yep. Uh, we've seen the prime minister announce the uh, indigenous day, which of course he doesn't bother with, but nonetheless, the rest of us were dealing with it and going to it and celebrating it and remembering. It. I don't know what's the right word there. Um, Acknowledging the, it. Well, the prime minister went. Yeah. Well, the prime minister went surfing, and I guess he's going surfacing, uh, surfing on the nineteenth as well. The Queen's thing, the Queen's yeah. funeral. That's he'll have the day going. off. He's going surfing. He's not going surfing. There's no way he's going. There's no. There is no way that he would make that mistake. You close. are the second person I have caught on that today. Well, it's you know what? the big joke is it's a national holiday, but it's only for the government, the federal government, and we all know what happened with Truth and Reconciliation. He gave us all yes. the lectures, then he took off and went surfing. Well, and that's and, why you caught me because I was like, wait a second, okay, we have seen this happen once, but there's no way that he would be getting himself caught in that mess again. Uh, look, it, there is just there there is got to be a a point, and I'm not against days off. Believe me, I'll take all mm-hmm. the days off you want to give me, but there does have to be a point where we say we do have to run a functioning country and government and we are paying a lot of taxes to pay for our civil servants. And um, I don't know that we need more holidays, but that's just Uh, me. All right. The discussion continues on the Scott Radley show coming up. after It does continue. We're going to open the lines about whether people think it's a good idea or a bad idea. So what do you think? I'm guaranteeing you that most people will say, don't do it. What All right, I will put, to, and yeah. will I put you right. down as a don't do it, don't do it vote? No, I'm like I you. I'm, I'm going to take every holiday I can get, so let's load them up. I'm, and you know what? I'm, I think we should all celebrate everyone's religious holiday and all of those other holidays that are celebrated across other provinces. That would make us, uh, that would bring us closer together. I think that would breed unity. Four work days a year we'll go. We'll drag ourselves <laughs> in for four grueling days of work every year. I'm in. Uh, Scott Radley coming up next. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, thanking the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny writes in to say, funny thing, government workers are having a holiday this Monday and the real workers have to work their asses off just to pay for these lazy... True taxpayers will be working this Monday and the real reason this government is poorly run will be off partying. And this idiot says he's got your back? Give me a break. Let's go surfing! Woohoo! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.